0: Hi, I am Joseph.
1: And I am Eleni. And
0: And we we are are the hosts of Microbes in Us.
1: This podcast brings together the people that work tirelessly to uncover and understand the microbial world, its secrets, its complexity, and its vibrancy.
0: And it will show us how microbes can shape, break, and make our human world.
1: From prehistoric times,
0: all the way to the modern world around us.
1: We hope you enjoy and share this podcast.
2: It is just another day in the lab. There is a sweet and yeasty smell in the air. The autoclave just finished and you pour 50 agar plates for this week's work. While waiting for them to cool down and solidify, you stare at the yellowish gelatin-like substance and wonder, who thought about it? It is such a smart idea and so essential to do any microbiology work. As a microbiologist, can you actually imagine life
1: without agar? Hello, dear listeners, welcome to our episode 10, an episode where we will bring to the forefront the history of a woman that revolutionized microbiology. I am Eleni Corsari.
0: And I am Corrado Nai.
1: And we are going to be your hosts for today.
0: You have just listened to a short narration, and yes, you have heard right. We are going to talk about the discovery of Agar today, which was in fact made by Angelina Fanny Hesse. Her contribution to microbiology is crucial, yet not widely recognized. We are glad to be joined today by Vanessa Ayala Nunez, who is going to tell us the story of this discovery. Hello Vanessa, good to have you here.
2: Hi, thanks for having me, Elenian Corral.
1: Before jumping into this hugely important story of Angelina Hesse, I want to ask you, Vanessa, what is your current role and research on?
2: I am working in Switzerland as a scientist at the Swiss Federal Laboratories for Material Science and Technology. In brief, it's called EMPA. It is a federal institute in Switzerland. What I do is that I coordinate projects with EMPA, with pharmaceutical companies and with local hospitals. For example, I coordinate a project uh, with a pharmaceutical company that produces nanomedicines to treat iron deficiency. And what we do at the institute is that we take the products from the- this company and we establish and develop an in vitro system to assess the biological response to to this given product, for example, to this nanomedicine.
0: Vanessa, besides being a scientist, you're an avid science communicator. What is your motivation and to whom would you recommend being more active in this role?
2: Well, actually, I have two main motivations for being so interested in science communication. First, and a very basic one is because, well, I'm a nerd. I love science. I like to learn about science and not just about the area that I'm working in, but I also like to learn about what others are doing or what others have done. And I think science communication is a great way of learning about science just for yourself. And second, and of course, quite important is because I think there is a big gap in between what is our science world, you know, scientists or people with a science background that we live in some sort of bubble and the rest of the world as if we would be coming from a different planet or a different species. And the issues that we're working with doesn't really matter for anyone, but for all what for us. So I think it's important to bridge this gap because it, it was not just established by the people outside of our bubble, the non-scientist people that think that we are different or we do weird things, but also by us scientists, by us people with a science background that think that no one outside of our bubble will understand us, will get what we do. So we should try to bridge this. So actually because of that, I would recommend science communication for everyone with a science background from students to professors and everyone in between. You don't have to have three highly high fancy academic degrees to be a science communicator. Because being a science communicator, it's not just writing a blog or like you making a podcast, which is a lot of work. I mean, science communication can be just part of your daily life. I in you go back from work and at home, you talk with your family, how was your day? And instead of saying, mm, yeah you know, it's complicated. You can actually make an effort and and try to share with them. Why? Because, I mean, you can actually teach something that can be useful for them to make decisions on their daily life eventually, but that also makes us less foreign for them. I mean, we scientists, we people with a science background are, you know, normal, like everyone else.
1: Really good points that you raised there, but we people are more curious and Today, we can see, I think, science communication being out there and people being more vocal on scientific information specifically. And we also have more information at our disposal. We have internet, social media, we have the television. So a crucial problem that we see today is the issue with miscommunication or facts going out that are not 100% correct. If you had a magic wand, what would you do to make fake news disappear?
2: Well, fake news is a very complex phenomenon. And you have, a yes, a lot of these groups that can be very vocal. And I think some of these groups, the source of this believing, tending to believe fake news is just because they, are, they have fear. They are afraid of the uncertainty and of what they don't know. So making fear disappear, it's not easy. And you cannot send someone to school to go through 10 years of science education. So what I would do with the magic wand is basically make scientists be more vocal to help bridge this trust issue between people that are tending to believe science, fake news and us, because maybe sometimes they don't believe us because they don't trust us, because we are not a familiar figure. So for them, it's easier to believe a familiar figure or the neighbor that just suggested an alternative therapy than someone that is on the news talking about weird figures and numbers in concepts and in terms that they are not familiar with. So what I would do, because I know that most scientists tend to do that. I mean, that's a fact. I would use the magic wand to make them more vocal and I will make them more relaxed about it and to do this, science, this exercise of science communication and like, okay, take the complex concept and make it simple and make it interesting and make it cool. And then people will eventually, well, hopefully will trust you. Also related with what we're discussing with uh, this day, I would put a bit more effort on female scientists. All scientists tend to overthink. I mean, we are paid to overthink, right? We are trained to overthink. But I think female scientists, we tend to overthink even more and we stop before speaking. So if we want to be vocal, we have to stop less and just try more. And I will also use the magic wand to create a space for the scientists. Because even though, as you will know, because you're working in the, in the field of science communication, even though you try to raise your voice, if you don't have the space, no one will listen to you. If you post a text that no one is clicking on the link, I mean, the message is not crossing, it's not reaching your audience. So I would use this, let's say, power to, for example, force social media outlets or news, big news networks to put money on it, to really uh, hire teams of science communicators to back up and to build real strategies in that direction.
0: In your blog entry, You tell the story of Angelina Fanny Hesse, who was an unpaid technician working in the same lab as her husband. This model of the late 19th century is obviously outdated today. And yet, is there any similitude in how science is performed today? In other words, can we learn something from the story of Angelina Fanny Hesse? Or do laboratory scientists currently face different situations and challenges?
2: Well, I would say something that has changed is the fact that now women are paid. I mean, we are not non-paid laborers in the, in the lab. That has changed. But a similitude that I can still see, also not the same, but it's still happening, is the fact that the opinion of women is still not fully considered. I mean, she was giving her opinion. She was probably taken seriously because she was the wife of, that was working for this big microbiology shot. But she, if she would have been in another context or in another lab or in another position, probably because she was a woman or because she was just the wife of, you know, uh, this very decorative position, she might not have been taken seriously. And I think that still happens. I mean, these days in academic and in industrial spaces, in, uh, in the area of science, it not just matters what is people saying, but who is saying If it is a woman, I still think it does matter. And I still remember, I mean, two interesting, well, one paper and one anecdote that I read. One, there was a study in the US trying to find or quantify this bias. To, towards the perception of women. I mean, who is saying exactly the same fact? Does it matter if exactly the same, even the same words are used by a man or a woman? What they did was to work with online forums where uh, teachers were just teaching, but without a camera. So at a university, you had female teachers and what they did is like, okay, you have two classes, online classes, and they don't see you. So in one class, you will give your real name. And in the other class, you will use a fake name and you're going to be a man in the other class. So they, they will think, your students at the university level, that you're, there's a man teaching exactly the same class. And at the end, they compared the grades. You know, at the end of the semester, you always get an evaluation as a teacher. And of course, the same person got better grades when the students thought the person was a man. So that already reflects a bias regarding this perception of exactly the same concepts. And that's, again, I still think it is happening. I can share another situation that I found uh, very interesting, but that is more an anecdote because it was not, there was not a a paper, it was not a story. I read this interview with a scientist who is now trans woman. So she's, she started as a man and she transitioned to a woman and she's a scientist. So same mind, same scientific mind. And then she, she also changed her name. And she started to say how different her science was perceived in conferences, the questions that she got, the comments that she got when she was speaking there. You know, again, same science, same project, same results, same way of explaining, because she was now a trans woman that was just seen as a woman. And she, I mean, she noticed, it was, I thought it was quite interesting to see that, to, to read that, how this perception actually changes. So I still think that's a similitude. And of course, there's a lot of work to do that. And just one small extra thing that maybe it's not related with uh, women bias, but it's more like the position bias. I also think that the role of technicians is not, still not really well seen in laboratories, in research labs, for example. I mean, if you're a student, if you're a postdoc, if you're a PhD, if you're a professor, you can give your opinion. It's like, oh, interesting. You're in a a talk. But if you're a technician, like, oh, you pipe it and that's it. You don't think. And that's not true. Technicians have lots of experience. They can be extremely passionate about the science. They have a different level of understanding of the experiments and they can be extremely intelligent. So I also think that there is this bias against technicians. And of course, if you take the combination, you know, female technician, it's even more the bias. I would say that that's still taking place. And there's a field to learn still from this story regarding that aspects.
1: Some fantastic points you raised there and definitely some points that we need to take forward into a discussion. I think also when we bring these views and stories forward, then, then we can achieve real change. Now, going back to the story of Angelina Hesse, so she made the discovery of agar. And before going into the story, I think it's a very good chance to explain to everyone that is listening what is exactly agar. So
2: agar or agar is a jelly-like substance that is made out of sugars that you can obtain from seaweed or from algae. So basically, it looks like gelatin. It's a semi-solid, semi-transparent gelatin. And it is widely known outside of the lab world just as agar-agar or agar-agar. Basically, anyone that walks into the supermarket section of desserts and cooking and baking, you can find it in small envelopes. It's a white powder that you bring to your house, you dilute it in water, you boil it, you let it cool down, and then it solidifies. And then you get this agar substance. And it is widely used in, I think, in Asian cuisine to make desserts. We also use it in Mexico, I come from Mexico to to cook for dessert, so it's quite known. So basically agar, but in the context of the lab, that is what we're going to talk about today, it's the same product. It's exactly the same product. We also buy this white powder that we also dilute in water, that we also boil at very high temperatures, and we use it on almost on a daily basis in all, almost all the labs in the world. The difference, of course, is that we don't eat it. We use it to either isolate or to grow microorganisms like bacteria or like fungi. And it is very useful. It is very important and uh, it is very practical to work with it.
0: You mentioned that we don't eat agar, and I would add to this, that microorganisms don't eat agar either. And that's one of the reasons why agar is so important in microbiology labs.
2: It is so common that even as students at the university, that's one of the very first things that you learn if you are like more in the biology field. And it is so common and it has been used for so many years that now in every movie where they, try to depict a laboratory, you see piles of agar. It's just very distinctive from from any lab.
0: But enough said by your host. Let's just sit back, relax, and listen to the full story told by Vanessa.
2: Angelina Fanny Hess was actually the first person to propose the use of agar, or agar as a culture media to isolate and grow microorganisms in the lab. She was born in 1850 in the U.S., then she moved to Germany, where she worked actually as a scientific illustrator and technician in the lab, we know as a non-paid technician, actually. Back then, and we are talking about 1880s, the field of microbiology was actually just starting. It was still not really known what a microorganism was. And a lot of people out of the field didn't even know that microorganisms existed or they didn't want to believe on them still back then microbiologists, I mean, scientists starting to work in the lab, had a lot of limitations because it was a new field, a new area. So there there were a lot of technical limitations to be able to have proper microbiology working experimental techniques. Because back then, I mean, let's say we want to study a microorganism, an obvious example, a microorganism that causes a disease, an infectious disease. So how do you do that? I mean, let's say someone has tuberculosis, cholera, the big ones from back then, you go to the field, you take a sample from the throat, from the nose, whatever you want, you bring the sample to the lab, you isolate the microorganism, you grow it, and then you start working with the microorganism. You study it until you are able to find an antibiotic against the bacteria, an antiviral compound against the virus that you just isolated. So basically that was the process and it sounds easy, right? But back then, it was not so easy. And actually, this is the point where there was a slowdown in the process. Exactly this moment, and when you bring the sample, and you have to isolate and grow your microorganism, it was not really possible. It was extremely complicated. Because what were the options back then? People brought the samples from the patients. Let's say tuberculosis, cholera, which was also a a bacteria. They brought it to the lab and the options were, okay, I put my sample on a slice of potato. I put my sample on the white part of the egg. I put my sample on a piece of meat. I mean, you just think of rich mediums where you know that that microorganisms will grow. I mean, you don't have to be a scientist to understand the complexity of trying to grow a bacteria on a slice of potato. I mean, it's very, very complicated. Basically, you put the sample at the the next day, you maybe have something growing that it's just all over the place. It's a combination and your slice of potato is just falling apart. So good luck trying to isolate something from there and to reproduce and to amplify. So there was this very big knowledge gap and technical gap specifically in this part, and that was slowing down the whole field. And as I mentioned before, Angelina was working in the lab, actually in the lab of her husband, Walter Hess, and he was working as a postdoc for Robert Koch. And if Robert Koch doesn't ring a bell, he's basically one of the iconic microbiologists of all times, probably together with Louis Pasteur. He was very, very known because he was the first one to report, to describe the bacteria that causes tuberculosis, which is what we now know as Mycobacterium tuberculosis. Lina was working in this lab together with her husband, and she was in charge of producing the culture media, either the slices of potato or whatever they were trying to make it work. And she had family friends that lived in Indonesia, where agar-agar was used already to prepare desserts. So she was familiar with the, let's say like the cooking technique, with the concept of agar, of this semi-solid material after you boil it. And that's what basically she did. She thought about it. I mean, she was familiar with the struggle on how difficult it is to isolate a microorganism. You need a substrate. You need a medium to make them grow in a proper way, in a controlled way. And she said, well, why don't we try agar? But it was not just a matter of luck. I mean, she knew the struggle. She had the technical expertise to be able to identify the specific problem. And she came up with a technical solution for that. And she said, let's use agar. And, well, what happened after she proposed it? I mean, they tried it in the lab. It worked very well. And that just happened to be the solution for all this struggle of isolating microorganisms. So because the agar was perfect, the agar remains solid at room temperature, at high temperatures. microorganisms will not digest it, which means that if you isolate something there, at the next day, it's not going to be falling apart, like the slice of potato. You can actually sterilize it. So you can keep it clean and you can grow there just what you want, not everything is going to grow there, and you can combine it with many other nutritious media. So you can make it very specific for your microorganism of interest, because sometimes microorganisms can be very picky, they don't grow, you know, anywhere, you have to make them like a very special combination. And because of this contribution that actually worked very well, Robert Koch was able to isolate the bacteria for tuberculosis, mycobacterium tuberculosis. And if you read the paper where this was published, which is a classical paper in the microbiology field, it was not mentioned that agar was, I mean, the contribution of Angelina Hess or the contribution of her husband. It was never mentioned uh, officially in all these publications of this group, the Koch group, which is what it will be called these days. So back then, basically, her contribution remained unrecognized. Well, okay, she's a technician. She's the wife of. She's not paid. She's a woman. So it just remained like that. Until decades later, there were a few scientists interested in just the the area of microbiology, how things were evolving, and they found out that it was her, the one that made this contribution, and they actually described it in a paper, describing the process or the importance of agar. And then now these days, it has been quite slow, the process. I mean, we're talking already about, what, 140 years ago when she was working on this, on on this use of agar in the lab. 140 years later, uh, here we are uh, discussing that. It is still not widely known, not as much as uh, how widely used is agar, but little by little, her name is coming out to the light. And not just as the wife of or the non-paid technician of, but actually, I mean, her full name, I mean, Angelina Faniches. And it is known that she's the one that proposed agar as the medium to isolate and grow microorganisms,
0: which is huge. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for sharing this story with us. You can read the full story on the FEMS Microblog section of the FEMS website with a link provided in the description of this podcast. Also, if you have a story to tell related to microbiology and you want to write a blog, feel free to submit your idea to us via email or via social media.
1: So next time you use ACAR, say thanks to Angelina Fanny hesse Thank you, Vanessa, and to all of our listeners that stayed with us until the end. Find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FemsMicro, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, femsmicrobiology. Microbiology.
0: Have a great rest of your day and we'll see you in our next episode.